Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 21st, 2009. My guest is Charles Calamiris, Henry Kaufman Professor of Financial Institutions at the Columbia Business School and Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Charles, welcome to EconTalk. Pleasure to be here. Our topic for today is the financial crisis. I want to start with the point you made recently that we need to put it in historical perspective. Why is that? Well, whenever you have a financial crisis, you have one event Of course, it can be different across different countries, but essentially one event and about 20 different explanations. Um, They all have probably some truth to them, and then the question is, what weight do you attach to each? By putting an event like this into historical perspective, you know what rocks to look under. You know sort of a priori what weights to attach to different things, because we've seen this sort of thing before. And so by putting this crisis on, if you like, the historical regression line of other crises, we, I think, get a lot more uh, useful perspective on what was really important and what wasn't. So what do they have in common that we ought to be focusing on this time? I think what's clear is, um, first, banking crises are different from other crises historically, and this uh, shares that, in that while all financial crises banking crises, stock market crises, real estate crises, sovereign debt crises, they all have a cyclical um, sort of timing story. It has to do with monetary policy looseness or something that gets credit cycles going. But what's different about banking crises is that that isn't enough to get them to happen. So people who are looking just at monetary policy, they're right that monetary policy contributed, it explains the timing, but what they're missing is that banking crises pretty much uniformly, if you want to understand the frequency and the propensity for banking crises across time, there's got to be something wrong with the microeconomic incentives in the banking system. You're not going to get a crisis of this magnitude just coming from a normal business cycle reaction of the banking system. There's something deeply wrong with microeconomic incentives that produces a banking crisis like this. In particular, you argue that those incentives are distorted by various changes uh, in government policy. Well, yes. I mean, so the most obvious thing is, if you're telling people with very poor credit history that they can get credit with no money down and without having to verify any of their documents, and you're making that a matter of government policy through a variety of channels, FHA lending, uh, pressures being placed on Fannie and Freddie, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two government-sponsored entities that had implicit, now explicit, government protection, and through a variety of other means. Um, state programs that state programs, very similar uh, things. Absolutely. Um, also, the mortgage tax deduction, which is controversial. That, to me, is not the biggest issue because the people getting subprime are not paying a lot of income tax. That's right. So the mortgage tax deduction, I don't think, is a big deal from their standpoint, I think the big deal was FHA and the affordable housing push since about 1994 
uh, that the government has had on Fannie and Freddie. There were also other changes that people are not so aware of. For example, um, there was a government legislation in 2006 with the SEC writing rules, uh, proposing rules in early 2007 um, to make it harder for ratings agencies to uh, be tough on mortgage-backed securities that were subprime. So there, there were all sorts of congressional actions that were pushing to make subprime happen more and faster. Uh, and I think that that's a big part of the story and that, that explains why we had such a severe um, problem in the housing sector in the U.S. You have to look and say, well, credit card securitization has been going on for a long time. Some people say this is all about securitization and about the so-called originate and distribute model having flaws in it. Well, if that were true, why wasn't it credit card securitization that failed alongside subprime? In fact, quite in, in contrast to that, all of the lessons that we've learned for 30 years in the credit card securitization business and which are continuing to be applied in the credit card securitization business were completely put aside in the mortgage securitization business, and that's because of incentives that were established by government programs that made it possible for people to put those incentives aside, in large part, not entirely. Okay, I, I'm saying that was a very big part of the story. Now, there were other, there are other aspects of the microeconomic yeah, distorted wanna, incentives. I want to come to the current crisis. I want to put that right. – we'll come to that soon. I, I want to stick with the history for a moment. Because I do think there is a terrible mistake people make in, in assuming that this is uh, it's sort of a reverse myopia. It's the first time we've ever had this kind of crisis, and it's all it's unique. It's this perfect storm. But the part I want you to talk about is uh, you identify in a recent paper an extraordinarily large number of banking crises, both in the United States and around the world, uh, going back well into the 19th century. And I think a lot of people conclude from the frequency of those crises – that the banking system is inherently at the mercy of human psychology. Uh, this is the Minsky explanation. It's the madness of crowd story. It's the, you know, humans are we're frail and we're we're imperfect, right. and we just get all of a sudden we get nervous and there's a run on the bank, or all of a sudden yeah, we just get work. greedy right. and and we just want to have a higher rate of return. This story, I think, it's a very uh, a lot of people find it very convincing. What's wrong with it, and, and why isn't it uh, a huge part of what we've just seen? You, it's commonly argued that it is. No, it isn't. And actually, I don't know any um, economic historian of banking who uh, today who subscribes to it. The, the thing that's wrong with the story is obvious, uh, basic facts. So if it were true that banking crises were pervasive historically and that they tended to accompany um, you know, business cycles generally, then we wouldn't see huge variation across time and place in the likelihood of having a banking crisis. But what we do see actually is banking crises were much more pervasive in some places and sometimes than they were in other places and other times. So, for example, uh, if you go from, let's say, the period 1874 to 1913, which is the period of our first big globalization of markets, uh, free entry into banking throughout most of the world, fixed exchange rates, big capital flows, um, very similar in many ways to the current modern globalized economy, not in every way, but, but somewhat similar. 
And then you say, okay, well, where are the big banking crises? The answer is, well, there really aren't too many, if you mean by banking crises, waves of bank failures with lots of losses. Um, so let's we can list them on one hand. Uh, Argentina in 1890, Australia in 1893 were really the only two big ones. They each uh, had negative net worth of failed banks of about 10% of GDP. Then there are um, a couple of other ones, Norway in 1900 and Italy in 1893. By the way, all of those share important features having to do with distortions of government policy that were risk-inviting, but that's another story. The most important thing to note is that there were only four of them. Now, when you look at the period from 1978 to the present, the number of banking crises defined by the same criterion of a large amount of loss relative to GDP, you have about 140 of them. And not only do you have 140, but you have 20 out of those 140 that are significantly bigger than the two big ones that happened previously, that is the Argentina in 1890 or the or the Australia in 1893. We've got lots of banking crises that have cost, about 20 of them, that have cost more than 20% of GDP now. So, you know, we're looking at an era where all of a sudden something was very different from 1978 to the present compared to 1874 to 1913. You don't think it's because people got greedier? Human nature changed in the last 25 years? You seem skeptical of that argument. No, I think if you're a historian and you're familiar with uh, human uh, desires for material goods, I don't really think it's the case that human nature has fundamentally changed in the greed dimension. So what did change? I think what changed was pretty obviously government policies that invite risk. Most importantly, government protection policies, deposit insurance and other bailout policies, which were the exception historically. And they were present in, uh, particularly in Argentina and Italy and different kinds of government policies that were promoting development of real estate, sort of like our Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac policies. Those were very important in Australia. I always like it when people say, well, uh, if Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had something to do with the current crisis, how do you explain the real estate bubble elsewhere? As if no other government thought it was a good idea in the last 15 years to overpromote home ownership, but it's not a uh, U.S. phenomenon only. Absolutely. It's, this is a very widespread phenomenon. In Norway, the other one on our list, actually had a Fannie Mae uh, prior to its financial crisis in 1900, something almost identical to it. So the, the point is the government sometimes – do things that aren't very wise in terms of promoting risks, particularly in real estate, and in protecting banks in ways that removes market discipline and often leads to excessive risk-taking because the banks are doing it at someone else's expense. Well, let me play skeptic for a minute. Two, two points that I think a skeptic would, would think about. One is uh, you, talk, you used 1978 as a starting point for the recent wave of bank crises. Uh, in the United States, uh, FDIC started, I think, in 19. 19- Around 1938, which is also when when Fannie, 34, 34, yeah, 38 was Fannie. It was the original Fannie Mae when it was a, a real, um, a, fed, a truly federal program. So we've had it for a long time. Uh, why are the so the first question would be why are the recent years uh, so much worse? And then the second question would be I think a lot of people believe that 1913, which was the end point of your first of your 
older historical lesson. Uh, that's when the Fed was created, the Federal Reserve of the United States. I thought the Fed was created to reduce uh, bank crises, to create a lender of last resort that had to be created because the private sector was so prone to this kind of um, problem. Well, th- those are two good questions, and there are clear answers to them. Let me start with the second one. Yes, the Fed was created in 1913, and we do have evidence that the Fed reduced the propensity in the U.S. for financial panics. I do want to distinguish between banking panics and what the crisis phenomenon of large amounts of bank failures, because they're really not the same phenomenon. They do overlap sometimes, but often they don't. So it's a longer answer to your question about um, what was the role of the Fed in all this. Yes, it's true that the Fed, through its um, stabilizing the seasonal fluctuations in the market for borrowing, especially having to do with the cotton market in the U.S. and the way the cotton market put particular seasonal strains on uh, movements in, in interest rates and liquidity changes at very high frequency in the U.S., the evidence suggests that the Fed really had a, a very important effect in making things more stable, actually at a seasonal frequency, and that it was that seasonal frequency stability that made liquidity problems that gave rise to panics only in the U.S. historically, having to do with the U.S.'s peculiar structure of unit banking. That's a longer story to tell. So yes, it's true that in the U.S., the founding of the Fed was associated with major improvements in the management at a seasonal frequency of reserves that reduced the frequency of panics. But we didn't have even prior to the founding of the Fed in the U.S., a problem of bank failures with large losses like the examples we've been talking about. So these phenomena actually of panics versus large waves of failures, you know, there are a lot of subtleties here in the seasonality of of lending. The the thing is that these effects, you can see that the richness of the historical record and actually trying to pin down things is pretty great. That is, we, we can actually have a consensus, which is developed now, about what is different about the U.S. relative to other countries, you know, banking, how we experienced panics when other countries weren't. Those panics weren't really associated with huge bank failures. They were still important events, but not like the kinds of things we're experiencing right now. What is, what is unit banking? Unit banking means that banks were constrained by regulation to only operate in one location. So you had, at its peak, over 20,000 banks operating in the U.S., and with a few exceptions in a few states with virtually no branches. You couldn't operate across state lines. You couldn't operate even within states. (laughs) In most states, you couldn't operate more than one unit, that is, one bank office. What that meant was that you had highly undiversified banks, so shocks to agricultural markets could cause you know, lots of problems in the system. And also, because you had so many players, they couldn't really coordinate uh, their behavior in response to shocks. So Canada, just above the United States, as we all know, has a branch banking system from the 1860s on, and this period of U.S. banking panics, not waves of significant failures, but panics from 1873, 1884, 1890, 1893, 1896, 1907, those are the ones in the U.S. Canada is not experiencing any of that. 
because it has a different microeconomic structure. And by the way, Canada didn't have a central bank until 1935, the founding of the Bank of Canada. So central banking turns out was helpful in the U.S. in bringing to an end the experience of panics, but only, you know, only because of the fragility of the U.S. banking structure because of this unit banking. So, but that's a whole different topic. I, I want to emphasize there's one topic called, you know, what causes panics and how central banks through lender of last resort conventionally defined, especially in a unit banking system, can be very helpful in preventing or resolving panics, especially through providing liquidity on a seasonal basis. That's all part of the history of, of the U.S., which was a peculiar history. But the broader history of causing over-speculation, through, which leads to very large losses in banks, the U.S. pretty much um, avoided that, with the exception of agricultural losses in the 1920s or the complete destruction of the global economy in the 1930s, which created bank losses too. So when we're thinking about these bank losses, like we're experiencing now, the story is pretty much a story of extremely distorted microeconomic incentives like we've had in this crisis. Well, let's go back to the current that other question, which is that incredible number. I think you said 140 uh, banking crises since 1978. Uh, for your story to be correct, you'd need to see a uh, increase in uh, risk encouraging policy on the parts of governments, particularly the moral hazard problem, the encouragement right. of of, uh, of risk-taking without worries about the downside risk. And, and then, I'm sorry, I didn't get to your, your first yeah, question, that's the, which that's is related it. to that. I'm yeah. coming back to it. Go for it. And so your question was, well, how come it started in the U.S. in 1979 with the S&L crisis? Why didn't we get this earlier? And there's a very simple answer to this. Uh, first of all, deposit insurance wasn't always so generous. When Franklin Roosevelt opposed deposit insurance, yep. the irony, of course, <laughs> yeah, was I love that, that people think of that as one of the great legacies yeah. of the New Deal. He was opposed to it. Why did he oppose it? Because during the 19-teens and 1920s, every state deposit insurance system that had been created, all eight of them, failed miserably with extreme disastrous consequences in bank loss and much worse than any other systems that were in nearby or for banking systems that weren't part of the state insured systems. So everybody around in, the, in circa 1930 who had been paying any attention knew that deposit insurance was a bad idea. Why did deposit insurance get created? Well, first of all, it was created as a temporary measure as an emergency measure, and very limited in its coverage to very small deposits only. And it was pressed by Henry Stiegel of Alabama, who had been pressing for this sort of thing because he came from a state where the banks, the small banks, were very politically influential, and they saw this as a way to prevent competition, to prevent consolidation, in which they would no longer be able to have local monopoly power in their own little Areas. Why would it prevent consolidation? Because when you protect, this, the small banks believed, and they were correct, that if you protected deposits, that would remove competition along the dimension of risk. In other words, right. large banks, like those Canadian branching banks we talked about before, could compete with small banks by saying, well, look how stable we are. We've got a look lot of how reserves. stable the system is. So if the small banks want to compete, they want it to have 
Uncle Sam saying, we stand behind them. Well, if you're a small bank, that means in a, in a rural area like Alabama, you've got mainly small depositors. So for those small Alabama banks, having a couple thousand dollars, up to a couple thousand dollars covered by the FDIC, meant the world to them. To New York banks, it didn't mean much at all. It was a very small amount of coverage. Great point. So for, for large banks, FDIC coverage really didn't amount to much initially, and it was something that was supposed to only last temporarily. Now, of course, over time, the coverage increased, and the coverage got a lot bigger um, and expanded. I believe it was in 1980 that it was ultimately increased to $100,000. And that was only by statute. Of course, in practice, uh, as as Gary Stern points out, and we talked to Gary uh, a couple – a few weeks back – in practice, uh, I think it's ninety nine point seven percent of all deposit of all deposits ended up being insured, regardless of the limit. Uh, well, what in, happened in the to 80s. My good friend and colleague uh, in at Princeton, Alan Blinder, didn't help matters when he invented something called CDARS. What are those? Spell CDARS it. CDARS is a new invention that is a great thing if you're rich because it used to be. Let's talk a little bit about deposit insurance. So the way deposit insurance works is, suppose you're a family of four. First of all, you're covered, um, let's say, in the old days when it, before this crisis, when it was only $100,000 maximum coverage. Suppose you're a family of four. I can open an account by myself, each of the four of us. Then we can each open an account as a pair, any two. Okay, so... A joint account. Two. A joint account. Yeah. A joint account, but of any two. Then any three of us can open another account, <laughs> and then all four of us can open one. So we can have thirteen accounts at at the same bank, covered up to one point three million. Because each each account would have the hundred thousand dollars. Right. Limit. And then we can go to every other bank and also get one point three million. Well, that's you know kind of uh, hard work to have to go around and do that. Yeah. So what CDARS did was it created a swap concept so that banks could set up syndicates that if, let's say you have $50 million, so you go to one bank with $50 million and you say, would you please swap this out to all the other banks? And so now you can do that if you have, let's say, $50 million with a, with the current $250,000 limit. That means that the, your bank has to find 200 banks that are willing to um, participate in your deposit. So each of those 200 banks is going to have, nominally at least, $250,000 deposit of yours. But you, as far as you're concerned, you have a $50 million deposit in bank number one. Right. So if you're rich and you know that C, you know, CDARS exists and your banker's going to tell you that it does because he doesn't want you to have to go around and shop at other banks, right? He wants you just to stay with him. So you go to that bank, and that bank says, don't worry about going around finding places to put your money and all that inconvenience. Just give me the $50 million. So now we've got to the point where we've created a swapping device called CDARS, that's C-D-A-R-S, that allows people to effectively have all of their money insured. So we're really at a point where deposit insurance has become, and of course that was a trend that happened over time, uh, went from being a temporary measure only for very small deposits pushed by an Alabama uh, advocate of small rural banks into, and it was clearly known to be and perceived as special interest legislation when it was passed. Ironic. Okay? Yeah. Went from that to being 
increasingly uh, a blanket protection for more and more banks, and uh, you can see why bankers like not having discipline that comes from having to compete on the dimension of risk. And so what we did was we got rid of that, that competition with respect to risk more and more over time. The other thing that happened was monetary policy and the business cycle became much more volatile after the 1960s, particularly as inflation went up. And that was a powerful uh, generator because if you don't have some risk, it's hard to bet on risk. The 1950s and the 1960s were extremely low risk in terms of volatilities of the stock market, volatilities of the price level. So it's really what's interesting is in the 70s, we really crank it up where we start having some risks to bet on in ways that we didn't have in the 50s and the 60s in the U.S. And coverage is expanding dramatically. So it's the combination of expanding coverage and expanding risk that's allowing you to see what's happening in the SNL industry uh, finally coming together in the late 70s. Remember, people, uh, um, even Friedman and Schwartz, who are generally regarded as uh, politically conservative, actually thought deposit insurance seemed to be okay. Writing in 1963, they said, well, this system seems to work well. You know, I think that they, they were wrong. They were looking at an unusual circumstance where coverage placid, was very limited. In a placid period of – Right. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, we used to have something in the U.S. called postal savings, which was an alternative way for small depositors to get um, – if they were worried about putting money in a bank, they could go to a post office, put money. It would be invested in U.S. Treasury securities, and they could know that they didn't have any risk. There is no reason in the world to have deposit insurance. You don't need it to protect small savers. We used to do it just fine with postal savings. And you don't need it, certainly, to protect against risk. It has been the single most important contributor to risk in the financial system by removing the discipline that comes from banks having to compete along the dimension of risk to get deposits. And so it's been very destructive. It's hopeless, probably, to get rid of it. It's spread throughout the world, which is why we now, since 1978, have had over 140 uh, major banking crises. We need more of it, obviously. That's what I love. (laughs) We've got – once you get 100 percent, you can't do much else. Actually, the interesting thing is when you look cross-sectionally, at times when deposit insurance is reduced, you actually see less risk. A great example of this was in Mexico, they had 100 percent de jure deposit insurance in the 1990s, early 1990s. They had their big crisis. And actually, deposit insurance went down. Now, the reason it Meaning, went down... What do, you mean, it, what do you mean went down? That's what I'm going to tell you. It didn't go down in its de jure coverage. It remained 100%. But de facto, it did go down. Because there were so many losses that people started saying, I'm not sure the government can cover these sure. losses. right. And so what happened was, even though you had deposit insurance, if you were in a bank that had very weak assets, all of a sudden you saw people withdrawing their money from that bank and not being willing to to let that bank grow. So you started getting discipline for the first time, and that was quite interesting. In Mexico, we started seeing money moving to places where the money was safer, the way it always has, and that's a very, historically it always did. Uh, We also saw a wonderful example in England. Now, England had historical uh, banking panics with costly uh, resolution problems in 1819, 1825, 1836, 
1847, 1857. And that reflected the fact that the British government was pressuring the Bank of England to basically give the market, so-called bills market, the London bills market, a put option on all bills. That basically, if things started to go bad for you, and you were holding a bill of exchange that you were worried might have some losses associated with it, that's a form of lending, you could just put it to the Bank of England at its discount rate and let it be the Bank of England's problem collecting on the bill. Why did this happen? Because Parliament, basically as a quid pro quo, required that in exchange for certain privileges that it gave the Bank of England, that the Bank of England give this kind of put option. And there was heavy lobbying in Parliament for the Bank of England to do this. Sounds a lot like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It sure Mack. does, because they, okay. they, they get this privilege – uh, they have to do something. You know, they get this exactly. higher rate they of return. Were the, they were they were a Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae kind of uh, institution. They had this privilege, but they had the quid pro quo. They have to give and something back. They <laughs> have to, exactly. And so what they gave back was systemic risk. Yeah, huge such, systemic risk. What a generous. Now, they didn't want it. The Bank of England. Every time a crisis happened, and Parliament said, "Okay, we want you to feel free. We're going to relax the restrictions on your abilities to lend because there were some quantitative restrictions." Let's not go into that. Every time there's a crisis, the Bank of England said, "Please don't relax the restrictions on me. I don't want to lend." And Parliament said, "You know what you have to do." Yeah. And then finally, after the 1857 crisis, the Bank of England, with the support of the press, both the Economist and the banker, the, the major financial news, news items of the time, and parliamentary hearings that backed them up that were released subsequently in 1858. On March 13, 1858, the Bank of England said, enough, we're not doing it anymore. And they made a public statement, a resolution that said, this implicit uh, put option that everybody's been using no longer exists. There was one more banking crisis called the Overend-Gurney crisis. Overend-Gurney was the largest bill broker in England. They had been bailed out by the Bank of England in 1857. But in 1866, when they came uh, looking for money again, the Bank of England said, no, we announced our policy in 1858, and we meant it. Overend-Gurney, which had been bailed out by the Bank of England in 57, was let go in 66, and that was the last banking crisis not 66, in... 1866, that was the last oh. one they had until World War I, which was a different kind of crisis, of course. It was driven by the political shock of the entry in, into the war. So Britain, if you go back and read, and, and none of the history I'm telling you are things that I went back and sort of gave a revisionist history of based on my own views. Everything I'm telling you is the mainstream interpretation that you can read about in dusty old books that people wrote before uh, I was ever born. And so I think it's quite interesting that the history of banking crises defined as moments like this, really large losses, has always been a history of perverse incentives created by the wrong kind of protection or the wrong kind of subsidization of risk by government policy. And so when you come to this current crisis from that background, you don't have to look very far. Uh, The protection of banks, we protect banks so much that we rely now entirely on prudential regulation and supervision. used to be that depositors were the source of discipline, not just regulators. But depositors no longer have skin in the game. 
And so we now have to depend entirely on regulators. Well, the regulators, their systems, their ways of measuring things, I've been criticizing for decades, and we don't seem to be able to get much reform because the bankers have lobbied against all the reforms that have been proposed, like the one Phil Graham backed that I proposed in 1999 as part of Gramm-Leach-Bliley. We could talk about that, too. But but the combination of subsidizing risks in the housing market and not tracking risks in prudential regulation in an environment where there's no depository discipline anymore because of deposit insurance, and furthermore, where even beyond the explicit protection of deposit insurance, you have the implicit protection of too big to fail, uh, which we first experienced in 1983 with the bailout of Continental Illinois. 1984, actually. Right. Their problems started in 83. Yep. So the, the funny thing is we've now got a system where we, re, we rely entirely on the, the prudential regulators to identify risk and stop it, while at the same time the government, which is supposed to be identifying the risk, which it doesn't do properly, out of its other pocket, yeah. is subsidizing huge risks, particularly in housing, through over-leveraging to non-creditworthy borrowers. And so is there any surprise that if you're doing those two things – and I think those are the two big ones, that when we finally get a lot of credit flowing because of another government mistake, this time called very loose monetary policy from 2002 to 2005, negative real Fed funds rates, more than uh, 1% to 2% departures from the Taylor rule in terms of where the Fed funds rate was pegged for several years in a row. So you combine all those, I'm sorry to say, government mistakes, and what you end up with is a huge banking crisis that looks a lot like what banking crises that are this costly look like in other places and other times for very similar reasons. Well, let's uh, let me let me give the skeptical view, which you hear from uh, those who would blame the market for this. They say, "Well, all that's true, but and the but is the worst excesses of of the crisis occurred in two thousand and four to two thousand and six, when subprime securitization." Uh, exploded. It's about $1.5 trillion in that, in that period, a little over $1.5 trillion, mostly generated by Wall Street firms, not Fannie and Freddie, mostly bought and held by Wall Street firms, uh, using uh, models of risk that were overly optimistic and that – and yet you know, people subscribe to these models and they were just – they were greedy and myopic and um, – it said so nothing to do with the government. This is just Wall Street run amok. Let's go through it. So in 2004, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac both decided to get into, in a big way, subprime mortgages, particularly in no-docs and low-docs mortgages. They first sent their emails out to their credit risk managers in February. I've read these emails because I testified on this before Congress. So they, they said, well, we want to do this. Their risk managers say, you know, basically, what, are you crazy? We know from the late 1980s, when we experimented with no-docs mortgages, that when you tell people that you're not going to check on them, you, you attract, like a, a magnet, bad credit risks. Right. Because that, it's kind of obvious, right? Yeah, you and don't so have to explain that. The risk that. manager yeah. said, don't do it. They were, the one who was the most vocal was fired. The others mainly shut up. And in two thousand for the best. <laughs> in two thousand four, as a result, I would say largely of the new entry 
And remember, Fannie and Freddie are the 800-pound gorillas in the room. If they decide to make markets, as they put it in those emails, make markets in these securities, those securities are going to take off. And they tripled in 2004. Because how do you how do you quantify that? I've looked at I've tried to. Well, I quantify it with the data that I have in my paper, but uh, but I'm going to talk a little bit also about Ed Pinto's work. What Ed Pinto's work shows is that when you look at who, but when this crisis occurs in 2007, and we're saying they're looking at outstanding paper, Fannie and Freddie hold 1.6 trillion of the non FHA. We'll come back to them because they're also doing quite a bit of this. Okay, and they're doing quite a bit of it at very large losses in 2004 to 2006. But Fannie and Freddie hold 1.6 trillion of the 3 trillion loss exposure to subprime lending. It's not already in FHA. I'm not sure. By the way, I think that's I've looked at Ed's work and it's very interesting, but it's it's hard to know if he's right. Oh, I think he, well. I, I, here's how I think it's, let me it's just, not hard to know that he's right. Let me let me just when yeah, I asked ahead. you how do you know you know where do you, how do you verify that? Here's reason- what you do: you start with the fact that a prime mortgage and a subprime mortgage are you know it's not a labeling issue; it's a performance issue. So if subprime mortgages, if something put in, they have these different buckets for for mortgages, and if the bucket has a performance that looks identical to subprime performance then you can say that's subprime. So he has these sort of, you know, adjustable rates with low FICO scores. It, by the way, if you look at them on their face, they're subprime. That is, Fannie and Freddie just lied. I mean, they just didn't call them subprime. They had their own naming conventions. But in terms of the conventions in the markets, these things were subprime by any measure, ex ante. But if you don't believe that, they're subprime in terms of their performance. Their performance is 10 times worse than prime loans. So you look at their performance in terms of their delinquencies, they're subprime. You look at them on an ex-ante basis, they're subprime. Ed, I think, is very much on firm ground in saying that Fannie and Freddie simply purposely understated their exposures. If you looked carefully, you could have known that they had them, but most people weren't looking that carefully, especially on Capitol Hill, for obvious reasons. And the people who financed them, didn't need to look Uh because they were counting on the bailout. And we're not done, right? Because you you made some good points, and I'm not trying to say that they're wrong, all right? So I'm I'm coming back to it. So first of all, Fannie and Freddie did play a huge role. But it wasn't just that they started this 2004 subprime no-docs boom, which was crucial. Half of the losses relating to subprime are relating to no-docs. The other half are relating to the modeling assumption that assumed that uh, you're, that you would never have housing prices go down. If you wanted to track what were the two stupid things that accounted for the, the whole mess, roughly in terms of statistical decomposition, about half of it is assuming that there's no adverse selection problem, meaning that you don't attract bad credits when you decide not to check on them. That's about half of it. And the other half of it is building into your stress test the assumption that housing prices could never fall. If you want to understand why did people's expectations differ so much from the outcome, those two explanations basically give you about each of them about half of the explanation. So subprime, Fannie and Freddie definitely promoted it at a crucial point. It was a very fast process, as you pointed out correctly, 2004 to first quarter 2007. But there's another thing that was so weird, and that was 
starting in the middle of 2006, as Joseph Ackerman said in a speech that I, I heard in December 2008 at the uh, European Central Bank, he said, you know, well, we saw, along with everyone else, and by the way, I've documented this in my research, even the ratings agencies reported it, that by the middle of 2006, the jig was up. Yeah, that's the thing I think is so interesting. And talk okay. about that. Yeah. Uh, so again, let's put... By the middle of 2006, it's clear that the basic assumptions that were underlying subprime mortgages, it's clear even to people who, who I would say it was clear ahead of time, okay? There was no question that it was unreasonable to believe that housing prices would never go down. We'd had business cycles where they did. But why did that? Why was that a reasonable assumption? It wasn't. It's also unquestionable that it was unreasonable to believe that no docs would, wouldn't attract bad credit risk. We knew from the 1980s that that was true. So how do we forget those things? It's also, you know, so we knew a lot of People things were that greedy. we were doing that were, that were problems. But then in two thousand, middle of 2006, even if you wanted to pretend you didn't know up till then, the ratings agencies are telling you, uh-oh, housing prices have stalled. Our modeling assumptions that say what the worst outcome could possibly be <laughs> are turning out to be too, way too optimistic. And we're starting to see some delinquencies forming in those 2004 and 2005 cohorts, and things aren't looking so good. And guess what? Just according to Joseph Ackerman, well, Deutsche Bank gets make sure that it has no exposure to this. Goldman Sachs makes sure it has no exposure to this. The interesting thing is, so a bunch of institutions start saying, uh-oh. Well, J.P. Morgan Chase never got into this. Goldman Sachs made sure that it was covered. Deutsche Bank made sure it was covered. It never got into it in a very big way. When you Morgan say covered, wait a minute, wait a minute. Into it. Wait a minute. When you say covered, you mean because they bought credit default swaps Ex from AIG? Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Well, so, they were yeah. sort of covered. <laughs> so, so Goldman Sachs w was covered, and, and it wasn't that heavily exposed in the first place, I would say. But... So, you know, you would look at this, and the big story is, aside from the first story I told you about the, the 2004 beginning of the boom, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac continue to originate, I mean, to accept, to buy, at peak levels for the second half of 2006 and the first quarter of 2007. And so do UBS, Citibank, and Merrill Lynch. Now, that to me is, as Gary Gorton put it, who's been, uh, of course, intimately involved in this market as uh, an advisor during its boom, as he put it, shocking. Those were the things that shocked him the most, that, that Citibank, UBS, and Merrill continued to sponsor deals and to invest in them. Remember, problem wasn't, as many people say, oh, it was originate and distribute. Well, no, these guys were keeping the, their buy sides within their own within their own banks, were buying huge amounts of this. Well, you didn't mention Bear Stearns. Well, Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers were also both involved in this, and Bear Stearns in, in an even heavier way, yes, but they're small players. I mean, okay. sure, there were problems, but they weren't. What I'm telling you is that if it weren't for what Merrill Lynch, UBS, Citibank, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac did, starting in you know June 2006, if they had all stopped, if just those five institutions had stopped doing what they were doing in the middle of 2006, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. So the, just as a side note, I think it's 07, 23% uh, of all of Fannie and Freddie's home purchase loans, that is loans that they acquired to uh, from – Institutions that lent to 
borrowers who are buying a house as opposed to refinancing. 23% of that Fannie and Freddie activity in terms of numbers of loans was for uh, low down payment mortgages in 2007, which is just, as you say, or as Gary Gordon said, shocking. It's hard to understand what they were possibly thinking other than uh, this sure is a good time. So the, the question is, you say, those five uh, names, uh, what were they thinking? I, th- I mean, my own uh, – first of all, we know what Fannie and Freddie were thinking because the emails, I, as I told you, they were heavily involved in the politics of Washington. There were reasons, especially starting in 2004 and 2005, where they felt that they were more politically cornered by potential opponents than they had been in the past. Well, they had a little accounting scandal in and 2004. They had an accounting scandal in 2003. A large one, actually. And then Alan Greenspan had turned against them beginning in 2000. They started having a few people. I don't want to give the Republican Party too much credit. It was they don't only a few it. people in the Republican Party who were starting to be vocal opponents, but it, they, the opposition was gathering momentum. I would point out that every Treasury Department for the last six or seven administrations has been opposed to Fannie and Freddie's expansion. That's the Clinton Treasury Department, the Bush Treasury Department. It goes way back. And so if you really look, Congress had, you know, was always defending them, and now it was starting to come apart a little at the themes where they were starting to, at least from the uh, some parts, not enough parts of the Republican Party, starting to get some opposition. They had to buy their insurance policy, and their insurance policy was to please Barney Frank. I hate to say it, but it, that's how simple it is in my view. But I don't want to overdo that, okay? I think that, yes, I do believe that the crisis would have been less than half as severe and that we might not even be talking about it still if it weren't for Fannie and Freddie. Yes, I believe that. But we still have to try to understand some other failures. Yeah, what were those other folks thinking, Merrill yeah. and City and, and I think that UBS? To me, um, it's interesting that if you were to ask, before this crisis happened, if you had asked some people who are specialists in corporate governance, which of the banks do you think is best at creating value for its stockholders? Um, I think that probably Citibank and UBS would have come near the bottom of the list on that. If having a culture of good corporate governance dedicated to creating value for stockholders. And At the bottom, that they don't they, have that, that culture. Is, yes. And Why? also, I would say from an ethical standpoint, if you went back and looked at where ethical lapses had been in Mexico and Japan for Citibank and many other instances for UBS, you would also see that there wasn't really... Um, that the, I, you know, I don't want to go too far out on the, on the limb here, but my point is the cultures were not very good cultures in terms of corporate governance and value maximization for stockholders because, let's face it, stockholders are the ones who really got hurt. And so why were these management? Well, hang on. They, they got hurt if they didn't get out in time. <laughs> a lot well, of them made a lot of money along the way. I mean I think it's important to remember. Okay. But, but I'm saying you know, they didn't – what they did – look, oh, I'm not talking about the CEOs. I'm talking about the stockholders. I'm yeah. talking about me. Yeah, I'm a Citibank stockholder, and you know I, I'm not a uh, an active trader in stocks. You know I put I buy stocks and I put them away. I have uh, better things to be thinking about. Um, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is that I is got that, hurt. No, I know, but all <laughs> I'm saying is that Fannie Mae and and Bear Stearns and other stocks that that took excessive risk and eventually got destroyed. Uh, for a long, long time, generated very, very attractive rates of return. That's all. 
and especially for their own senior managers. Yeah, we'll come to that later, right? Because, well, let's... because I, I think that's uh, we have to get to that. Yeah, because, no, get to it now. The key question, <laughs> I think that that still hasn't really been fully resolved, and there's a very active debate on this: is why were these managers willing to do these investments when they should have known better? And I think yep. they did know better. But I and I think it's really salient that there's it's not everybody that's doing it. That it's you know we we can understand Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and they were very important they were half of the story, but we can understand that from the politics of what was driving housing risk subsidization, but we don't have such a clean story about Citibank and UBS. Part of the story I think is that we've designed these institutions by regulation to be relatively immune to corporate governance because there aren't any. Uh, there isn't sufficient number of um, stockholders with large con- concentrated shares that can really discipline management. Now, in City, of course, you do have Prince Walid, got a pretty concentrated share, but we were all depending on him, right? One you know? guy, and, is a and thin, he didn't do it. That's a what, thin read. One yeah, person, right? What we need is concentrated ownership, and why don't we have it? Well, we've uh, regulated. We've Sorry. regulated not to have it. The Bank Holding Company access. Hedge funds and private equity investors can't invest in large stakes in, in banks. Uh, we have more generally in the 1940 Act prohibitions against more than one or two percent ownership in any public company by our other institutional investors, that is, insurance companies, pension funds, and mutual funds, and, and investment banks. And so, what we've done is, I think, contributed to this also with ill-advised regulations that have made it hard for people to have, for sophisticated investors to have large chunks of stock in a particular, in a particular bank holding company. But, but that's you know, probably not the whole story. Part of the story is that corporate governance was bad in these companies. They were, it wasn't bad in most places, but it was bad enough, and these guys could take enough risk so that even a few banks with very bad corporate governance could drive a very large uh, and, and ill-advised investment. Well, so I just want you to expand on that a little bit. So this argument that uh, the regulations were put in place to restrain concentrated ownership because what was the what was the just what was the logic okay, of that? So the, the argument there, as I understand it, is that we we wanted to make sure that the institutional investors who would be involved in various other transactions with um, public companies wouldn't have too high ownership stakes in those companies. Now, as an economist, I can tell you I see things quite in the opposite way. Um, But from a lawyer's perspective, the way lawyers think about the world, they think um, ownership creates conflict. I think ownership creates the right kind of conflict. Stewardship, yeah, responsibility, right. incentives. But, but that's, um, you know, there, there, we can have a reasonable argument about this with our lawyer friends who believe this, this way. But anyway, the point is lawyers run the regulatory process, and the 1940 Act codified that view. I think it's a very counterproductive view, uh, and uh, I wish we didn't have it, but we do. So as a result... Ownership stakes are de- unconcentrated, right. and, and explain again, make it well, drive home the point of why that's important. Finance, my, my friend Sanjay Bhagat has a paper that shows that no matter what you look at in terms of corporate governance score, the thing that really matters for making corporations work better is to have concentrated ownership of shares 
by by uh, other investors. So having, especially if it's people who are um, sophisticated institutional investors, that's even better. But the key thing is concentrations of ownership, because if somebody has 10 or 20% ownership stake of a firm, they're going to make sure that that management's doing things right, and that management's going to be worried about what they think, because they have a lot of votes to oust someone from a management position. And if you have two or three people who each have 10 or 15%, let's say, of ownership interest, well, if those three people get together and have dinner, and they don't like what's happening, then that manager gets thrown out. So this kind of thinking about the importance of some kind of concentrated ownership amidst the the fragmented public ownership is very standard thinking among corporate finance people, but it hasn't really penetrated into the mindset of the lawyer set. By the way, just an example of this, when Poland was going through its restructuring in the early 1990s, uh, Jeff Sachs and others convinced the Poles that they needed to establish a concentrated ownership interest in the newly privatized firms so that the new mutual funds that were created were kind of assigned big chunks of interest, completely the opposite of what the U.S. system requires. So it's not just me that's made this argument. Former Governor uh, Randy Krosner made, has made this argument before he was a governor of the Fed many years ago. Um, the polls, of course, latched on to this. So I think that we have a real design flaw, and especially in the banking area where we, in the other corporations, hedge funds or private equity funds can come in and, and buy it because they're not covered by that 1940 Act. But in the banking area, hedge funds and private equity funds are barred from becoming controlling investors because of a concern about the possible overlap of commerce and banking. Okay, So we've really set up large bank holding companies in the U.S. to be potentially the most undisciplined places for corporate governance in the world. Now, it doesn't always go wrong, but it went wrong in the case of Citibank hugely. And I think that that... Uh, Part of the story, maybe not all of the story, has to do with corporate governance and lack of stockholder discipline. Well, it, you know, Bebchuk and Spayman have a paper recently about the incredible uh, incentives for management and yeah. within bank holding companies to it, it. It can explain possibly. I think it will ultimately explain why so many of these banks originated and instead of selling, they held. <laughs> I I think you're right that, but I think it's also true of the outside investors. And by the way. Um, this is where I think there's been some misperceptions about where the ratings agencies fit into all this. And yeah, talk so, about that. Yeah. A lot of so, people think they're a major part of the problem. There I was, do too, but I, I would say I'm that they're, they're reflecting another problem that we haven't really talked about, but it's related to this question. As you correctly put it, what we have to understand is not just why these banks originated these things, but why they bought them, their own stuff. Uh, and But we also want to try to understand why insurance companies, pension companies, and uh, p- pension funds, that is, and mutual funds bought huge amounts of this stuff in 2006 and going into two, early 2007. Why were they willing to do it? And then the question is, and why were the ratings agencies willing to pretend that they believed that this stuff was still high quality, triple A? long after they should have known better. And in fact, we know that they did know better. That is, Fitch in, uh, in the middle of 2006 is saying, uh-oh, you know, all of our assumptions are being violated, things are looking bad, but they don't change their ratings. 
It's it's remarkable. They don't change their ratings until over a year later in a significant way. And the standard argument is, well, they were being paid by the people who issued the securities. They had a conflict of interest, which and I that, find and I, yes, that's I ridiculous. Think that's wrong. Well, it's ridiculous because everybody knew they had a conflict. It wasn't a secret. Right. Oh, the, the change in pay started in the 1970s, but it's not really – I don't think the pay of the, of the sponsors is the issue. Every, you know, sponsors are selling – Always. Everybody knows that sponsors are outselling. The, the ratings agencies are really working for the buy side, whether the buy side's paying them or not. And there are two issues about the buy side that are very salient here. One, the buy side are the ones for whom the ratings are used for regulatory purposes. If you're a pension fund or a mutual fund or an insurance company, or a bank, and you buy these securities coming off of these mortgage-backed securitizations. The ratings matter because you are regulated according to the ratings of what you buy. They let you leverage different amounts. They let you leverage them differently. They they might have prohibitions on how much of a certain class you can buy if you're a mutual fund or a pension fund. You get to you you get to um, do more things. The way you want to as a buy side investor, if you have more favorable ratings. And so, what we've seen, and actually, Cantor and Packer were the first to really document this in their article in 1994 in the New York Fed Quarterly, that securitizations, which are all institutional investor bought, unlike corporate debts that are bought by individuals or corporations other than institutional investors, that all of the great inflation starting in the 1980s was located in the securitization. Uh, related markets, not in the regular corporate debt markets, because the institutional investors who are the ones buying all this wanted great inflation, because great inflation loosened the regulations that bound them. But that's where I think too big to fail has to come in, because otherwise, why? I mean, that, this well, I think I'm, is. I'm going to get there. I Go think ahead. it's the same issue as your compensation issue about the management of, of the large banks. Keep going. Because remember, uh, a story that was told to me by, I can't say which ratings agency, but a guy at one of these ratings agencies said, and I'll come back to the issue of rating shopping in a minute because I think it's quite important, but that the way this is, was done, you know, uh, sponsors go out and they ask the ratings agencies, are you going to give me a favorable rating? The, ra- if the rating agency doesn't give them as much leverage and as favorable a rating as they'd like to do AAA, let's say, enough AAA percentage. Then they go to a different ratings agency, and they go with the one who gives them the best story. Now, the question is, well, why would that work? It only works if the buy side wants it to work. Because let's say Moody's is the best of the three. And when Moody's is dropped by the sponsor, the buy side says, well, wait a minute. By best, you mean the most demanding? The most demanding, the most trustworthy opinion. So if the sponsor says, wait a minute, why is Moody's not on this? Or if the sponsor just says, well, I know what it means. If Moody's isn't on there, that means that Moody's would have rated it much worse, so I'm not going to pay so much for this. If the, if the buy side behaved that way, rating shopping would not have been a Correct. race to the bottom. Correct. It couldn't have been. It was had to be that the buy side wanted it to be that way. And this Moody, I almost said, but I didn't quite say, somebody executive goes to one of these institutional investors after they've been rating shopped out of rating a particular instrument. They said, hey, we didn't didn't rate that because it it was so horrible. Why'd you buy it? And the answer he got, I'll never forget, 
the answer. We have to put our money to work. Yeah. Now, what, let's think about what that means. What it means is that if you're out there and you're running a fund, let's say, mutual fund or whatever, and you're getting a certain amount of deal flow coming your way, you have a choice. You can either say, as some hedge funds have done from time to time to their very sophisticated clients, uh, hedge funds have much better incentives toward risk, of course, because they share in the gains and they really care about making sure they preserve those gains. The hedge funds often say, you know, we're sending money back to you guys. We just don't have any good investments in our niche right now. But the other institutional investors, particularly pensions and mutuals and insurance companies, they don't do that, apparently. What they do is they say, we have to put our money to work. In other words, suppose that when this thing was getting really bad in the middle of 2006, the buy side said, we're not buying any more of this stuff. We're sending whatever money we have, we're sending to go either back to clients or back to headquarters to be Or in more conservative things, yeah. Yeah, to put into low-risk things. Well, they would have made less fees because they're making their fees for managing risky investments. So the way I look at it is it's also the buy-side institutional investors who have a lot of explaining to do. And nobody other than me, as far as I can tell, is really giving them a hard time. Like, what were they thinking? They were the ones who drove rating shopping and the race to the bottom. The ratings agencies were just giving them what they wanted. Well, they were buying that $1.5 trillion that was being securitized. As you point out, it could have been the case that certainly by the end of 2006, people should have said, I don't want this stuff. By the middle. By the middle of 2006. So, so, what's, your, so what's your story? Do you have a story? Well, the story is that if, if you're making your 1% on assets managed, you want assets managed to be large. Right, but that's not consistent with your... No, it's very consistent. The point is, first of all, you have to be able to think about more than one idea, right? I mean, a crisis doesn't... You know, if we hadn't had the monetary policy blunder of 2002 to 2005, we wouldn't be here talking today, okay? If we hadn't had Benny May, Freddie Mac, and FHA pushing high and through government subsidies and, and CRA and mortgage deductions. If we hadn't had all those things pushing so hard to get affordable housing to happen with no, virtually no money down or risks that, that were really not good credit risks, we wouldn't be here today. And if we'd had good prudential regulation, or actually measuring risks in the in the banks themselves and the already regulated institutions, measuring them creditably, we wouldn't be here here today. But we didn't have that that third thing because they relied on the banks to tell them what the risk was. What a joke! Or to have the ratings agencies tell them what the risk was. A double joke. The ratings agencies are working for the buy side, meaning the the institutional investors, including the banks. Why would the ratings agencies ever give anything but inflated ratings? <laughs> so we outsourced to the ratings agencies, but the ratings agencies' incentives were that as soon as rating, as soon as regulation was outsourced to them, they would become great inflators because they got paid for it, and the people who paid them were the buy side, not the sell side. So all of those things contributed. Along, but, but, and then the question has to be: Well, why were these? Three banks, we already understand Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but why were those three banks in particular and some other institutions 
willing to buy so much of their own bad stuff? And why were these outside institutional investors willing to buy so much of it? And I think there we have to get into agency problems. We have to talk about why people are willing to invest other people's money badly in order to earn fees on the amount that they're investing. Go ahead. That's the answer, right? So I think... Well, why would I keep giving people... I mean, you have two problems with that story. Oh, here's why. Here's why. The the ratings agencies were a coordination device for plausible deniability. Sure. Everybody who's investing can say, we did the same thing as everyone else, and the ratings agencies all gave us the same signal, and they all gave us the same thing to do, our CYA, after the fact. Okay, so you tell me. Where are you going to put your money instead if everybody's under the same sort of compensation rules? Well, I, I think I have a problem with that for, for two reasons. Yep. One would be uh, that would that explanation would, seems to me, conflict with the Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase division that, that you know, Lehman and, and Bear Stearns were doing gloriously well in 04 and 05 and 06 before the bubble started to pop. They looked great, and it's true. There was pressure on other investment banks to match those returns and invest in the same junk, the same toxic stuff, and they resisted it, some of them, in various amounts. And they're profiting now. And they're, J.P. Morgan correct. Chase is, is on top of the world. Correct. Goldman Sachs is on top of the world because they didn't just jump in. Correct. Yes. But but you're missing my point. Yeah, so get those, to it. Yeah, make it clear. institutions were run by people who were operating in good corporate governance environments very important, which were maximizing shareholder value, including their own CEO's shareholder value, but not just their own CEO's. And those good corporate governance environments made good decisions. When I look at institutional investors, there's another regulation I haven't mentioned yet about outside institutional investors, and that is, let's look at mutual funds. Mutual funds are not allowed to have fee structures like hedge funds. That is, they're not allowed to have profit sharing on the upside only. If you're running a mutual fund and you want to run a portfolio and take an, um, 20% of the, the profits and 0% of the losses and a flat fee of 2%, which is the standard sort of hedge fund compensation package, that's not legal for a mutual fund. You can't do that. If you want to take upside in a mutual fund, you also have to take downside in equal amount. It has to be symmetric. Well, no money manager is going to write that contract because it'll kill them. I mean, they're not, you know, they're managing so much more. They can't afford to take the downside. They they can't write it out. You can't really expect them to. So the optimal contract probably doesn't look very different from the hedge fund contract. But you're not allowed by law to do that if you're a mutual fund or anybody else. You're not allowed to have that kind of profit sharing with your investment portfolio. So... Pensions aren't allowed to do that. Mutual funds aren't allowed to do that. What they are allowed to do is have fees that are proportional yeah, to, to asset size. Yeah. To assets managed. Yeah. Well, what does that make you want to do? Keep assets managed growing. That's my point. Yeah, except that I, as an investor, know that you have that incentive. There's and who no do you ways... go to instead? Well, there'd be some. you'd think there'd be some incentive for somebody to try to establish You're not a... big enough. You're... This is the problem. Poor people. Me and you. Poor people can't go you, to CDARs. You and me, you're talking about yeah. poor people. Yeah. We, we can't use CDARs, that, that deposit scam that Alan Blinder invented, okay, for insurance, and neither can we go to hedge funds because we don't have enough. We don't qualify, yeah. 
So what we do is we, we have to play the game with the mutual funds, and they're all coordinated by the same bad regulations. They have the same bad fee structures and to produce the same bad results. Now, this way of thinking, I'm, I don't want to put everything on regulation. I haven't, because I think that there's some corporate governance problems out there in the cross-section you need to be able to explain. You know, J.P. Morgan Chase was regulated just like Citibank. Why yeah. did they do well and Citibank do badly? We have to explain these things, and we don't have them all figured out. But most of the story so far is bad government monetary policy, bad government subsidization of risk in the mortgage market, bad government prudential regulatory policies that outsource things stupidly to ratings agencies with bad incentives, and that outsource them to the banks themselves to tell them what the risk were, how, risks were, how stupid, and bad policies that limit the concentration of ownership within banks, and bad policies that limit the incentives of institutional investors to not have skin in the game. And so then we turn around and we're real surprised that the private markets aren't working perfectly. <laughs> well, let's let's close with that because I want you to come back to a discussion we had before we started uh, taping and that you alluded to very briefly. A lot of uh, critics of uh, markets have suggested that it that your story's wrong. It's all deregulation. We let banks get into too many things, and uh, it's all you know, Graham Leach Bliley and other uh, policy blunders of deregulation, not overregulation. Well, that's that's just factually wrong. I mean, and I, I think what's good is that the Obama people, although they said these things during the election, to their credit, they've stopped saying them because it's, it's nonsense. Deregulation meant two things, uh, let's say three things, since 1980. First, uh, removing Regulation Q which was a limit on interest that banks could pay on deposits. I think everybody it's agreed savings. that it didn't make sense in the first place. Yeah. We finally got rid of it. Number two, eliminating restrictions on branching. We talked earlier about unit banking. Um, we had elimination at the state level and at regional level, and then finally in 1994, the, the Regal-Neal Act that created sort of full-scale potential for uh, uh, nationwide branching. So, number one, regulation Q. Number two, removal of branching barriers stabilized banks, clearly, and made banks more efficient. Evidence is pretty clear. Number three, the removal of restrictions on um, underwriting of corporate securities, which had been phased out starting in the uh, 1987 with experimentation that was done and there was a lot of, uh, I testified on this at Capitol Hill, a lot of other people did too. It, was, it never made sense. It was based on a false doctrine that somehow banks got too risky when they underwrite corporate securities. I want to emphasize how stupid this idea was. Actually, underwriting fees are not very, there's no real risk associated with underwriting. Underwriting is a very short-term period where you're making a market in these things. Banks banks don't really take much risk in underwriting. And all we're talking about with the deregulation having to do with Glass-Steagall was just allowing banks to get into the underwriting business, which was for corporate debts and equities without limit, which had been phased out from 1987 until 1999 when it was eliminated completely. Um, this has nothing to do with subprime, right? I mean, underwriting corporate securities is, we wish they had done more of that and less securitizing subprime debt. Banks, if you had not had any of the deregulation I described, 
you would have had, you could have done, the banks could have done everything that they did. All that this, and by the way, standalone investment banks were very much a part of this problem. They weren't even covered by any of these things we're talking about. So Merrill Lynch, Bear Stearns, and Lehman Brothers weren't even affected by any of this. They, they remained as standalone investment banks. So it's so nonsensical. But then it's even stupider for two other reasons. Um, when these banks got into trouble, the investment banks got into trouble like Merrill Lynch, the fact that we had relaxed the Glass-Steagall barrier meant that Bank of America could buy Merrill Lynch, which stabilized the system. And it also meant that J.P. Morgan Chase could buy Bear Stearns, which stabilized the system. And it also meant, and this is the second point, that in September of 2008, when things started heating up for Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, that they could get into bank holding companies, become bank holding companies, which gave them immediate access to depository funding and to a more regular sort of relationship with the Federal Reserve, which also stabilized the system. So actually... The deregulation stabilized the system, had zero effect on the risks that were being taken that were at the heart of this. And so for people to say deregulation caused it, it's it's a kind of ignorant comment, in my view, that comes from people having some sense that, well, you know, deregulation happened during the 1980s and the 1990s, then the crisis happened in 2006, 2009, and so I guess deregulation caused the crisis. It's, it's at that level of stupidity, in my view, and it's, in fact, the opposite is true. Well, I would, I've tried to get some of the proponents of that view on here and have had not, not had much success, but I will continue to try. Well, I'll tell you one view that one of them <laughs> said I, – I, I don't want to use words – I shouldn't use words like stupid, but I, I do feel like it's, it's such a ridiculous comment. But what one person said that I do agree with, and you see what his whole experience had been was – what was he really talking about? What really was making him mad was Citibank. And what he said was, what went wrong was that as soon as you had Citibank getting into all these things, the people who started having power in the organization were these sort of flim-flam, deal-making pipes, thinking like investment bankers. <laughs> but notice that that's just Citibank. That was really a story for Citibank. And that it wasn't didn't have anything to do with corporate underwriting, which is what Glass-Steagall uh, was all about. I would also point out that the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act had within it the greatest promise for restoring some discipline to the banking system. And that was, Phil Graham put this in, the requirement that the Fed and the Treasury consider a subordinated debt requirement for banks. Explain what that is. Explain okay, what... so the Shadow Financial Regulatory Committees, which is a private organization of financial economists around the world, we have one in the U.S. and in Europe and in South America and in Asia, have all gotten together and said, in order to get some discipline back into the banking system and to have sort of a canary in the coal mine who can find problems before they develop, let's have banks raise a certain proportion of their funds in the institutional investor market, and let's make it clear, we'll make these a small portion of funds, that nothing, even government bailouts, will never assist this particular class of investors. So let's say 2% of all bank holding, large bank holding companies have to be financed by a particular class of subordinated debt whose whole mission is to give us an early warning sign of problems by not being willing to keep rolling itself over. That's a market signal. The it's idea would be... It's a market signal, and that 
therefore, if this bank goes under, you guys, who are a small portion of the bank, no matter who gets bailed out, by law, you will not be bailed out. With the idea that then they'd pay attention, and we'd see the value of that change. Okay, so so this idea had huge academic support in the mid-1990s, including by me, and Bill Graham, being a Ph.D. economist, understood that this was a good idea, and he asked that if it was part of Gramm-Leach-Bliley that it would be considered. So the Fed staff at the Board of Governors wrote a very nice research paper looking at all the evidence and arguing, of course, the academics already knew this largely too because we'd looked at the same evidence, that this made sense. This could work. And so I then participated in a meeting, I think it was at the OCC, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and the Fed people were there and the bankers, uh, Treasury office people were there. And we heard the bankers explain, la, 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 why they didn't want it. And then at the coffee break, I said to the, one of the guys who, who I won't mention what institution he's from, and I said, that was hokum. And he sort of laughed and said, yeah, I know. And I said, what, what's going on here? And he said, well, we don't want it. Why would anybody want discipline? Yeah. And so I said... And so what, yeah, go ahead. So then what happens is when the Fed report is written up, the, lo- the banks have lobbied with Larry Summers, then Secretary of the Treasury, and Alan Greenspan, then uh, Chairman of the Fed. And you read through the Fed study, and it, it's you know about 30 pages of all the reasons this stuff works. Then you turn to the last page, and therefore, turn the page, more research is needed. So they basically so that tanked it. It didn't happen. Right. So part of the, the, the whole idea of the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act was deregulation, but let's also try to empower market discipline. And of course, the bankers managed to lobby, and how many of your listeners, are, or even you, were even aware that that was part of the initial vision of Gramm-Leach-Bliley, was to create deregulation and also more market discipline. And I would still argue the deregulation turned out to be extremely helpful to us in resolving this crisis. But they left out the other part, not coincidentally. And so what's really disappointing now is you look at the current Obama administration proposals, the failure to measure risk by Basel is never mentioned. You won't hear any of these G7 leaders even talking about it. They want to talk about the incentives of the CEOs, and la, 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 la. But they don't want to talk about the fact that the problem was the prudential regulatory system is fundamentally broken. They want to beat up on the credit ratings agencies, but they don't want to emphasize that the Basel II system actually outsources more to the credit rated agencies than Basel I did. So there is a deep problem in our political economy of banking regulation generally. Uh, these Nobody seems to want market discipline. Nobody wants to bring back, none of the politicians, none of the banks want discipline. And I think it's a crucial part of the problem. It's not even mentioned in the Treasury uh, proposal. And it's one of the three fundamental failures that we talked about on the micro side. Prudential regulation of banks failed. It wasn't that there was a lack of, of supervision. Basel II and Basel I were in place. They failed. Why is that not even mentioned? Yeah, I always like it when people say uh, 
this crisis, and unfortunately, a very illustrious economist who said this crisis proves that self-regulation can never work. And I'm thinking we're talking about one of the most regulated industries in the world. How can you say such a thing? But uh, you, you can say that of ignorance. Yeah, and I think that uh, I hate to say it, but I think it's very much part of the standard story. Um, one of the best things that Luigi Zingales and Raghu Rajan did in their book, Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists, was they pointed out that protecting banks from market discipline is something that populist politics sells very well. Yeah. So that when you tell people, you depositor, we're going to protect you, what you really are doing is a flim-flam operation. But that has worked. That sell job has worked so well that the idea of, of even introducing a little smidgen of market discipline, which the banks don't want, is so easy to smash politically because you just uh, refer to the lack of any desirability of having the market have anything to do with it. Let's keep it in the nice, wise hands of the regulators. And it is remarkable that in the midst of this massive regulatory failure to measure risk, which was the failure of the prudential regulatory system, didn't measure the risk of the regulated institutions. Let me also point out, the investment banks were under Basel II. People say, oh, it's all that deregulation, or the investment banks weren't being regulated. Under U.S. agreement with the Europeans, the SEC was the Basel II regulator for the investment banks. They all had capital adequacy standards based on Basel II kinds of formulas. And you might say the SEC was not a very good supervisor and wasn't very diligent in its application of this. But the point is, Basel II thinking was applied, and it gave, just like the Basel I and Basel II thinking applied to the banks, commercial banks, it gave a false sense of security, and the, these systems are bro were broken before they were even put into place. They made no sense. And so it wasn't that these guys weren't regulated. They were regulated, but they were regulated with ineffectual risk measurement regulations. And we're, we still aren't talking about it. I mean, it's not even on the agenda. No, and it, it's going to be a um, – I think it's the central uh, challenge to those of us who see things the way you do and the way I do to get it on the table. And uh, it's a very depressing story, but on a cheerful note, I want to go back to your earlier comment that in England in the middle of the 19th century, they learned something, and it's conceivable that we too in the United States will learn something. It's just a question of what we learn, and if we learn the right thing, I think it's possible that the political system will respond to the uh, wishes of the citizens, citizenry. We just have to get a little more uh, ornery and a little more educated. And you know, I, I agree with you, and I just want to also say The Economist magazine and The Banker were instrumental in fomenting the kind of public outrage yeah. that, that ultimately showed up in the parliamentary report and other places that helped that to happen. What we want to make sure, though, is that we, we channel this into thoughtful public responses, not just hatred toward the banks, right. which has been the, ma the main public reaction. It's been very counterproductive. So it's the combination of ignorance and hatred <laughs> that, that we're living through right now that's explaining why we're making so little progress in regulation. But I, I have another optimistic comment, though, which is economists tend to agree a lot about these things. And for once, Congress seems actually to be 
I don't want to use the word humble because that's an exaggeration, but the wrong word. willing to listen to economists. And economists, I think, if they can work together, and we're, we're doing this a bit, we can actually maybe um, improve the debate because well, there's lots of room for improvement. Let me, um, let me put a, a negative note to that, which is I think economists have been way too uh, congratulatory to those who rescued so many companies, and I think we've made we've helped enable the too big to fail doctrine. We certainly recognize the problems with it, but if we're going to recognize those problems and talk about how great Bernanke, Paulson, and Geithner have been in keeping the system going, we're going to create the next problem. Well, I agree with you, and we're seeing it already in. Uh happening in the mortgage market with FHA expanding to now have yeah. you know about a quarter of the market share. And but don't worry, because the head of the FHA said it's not going to cost the taxpayer a dime. It's Fortunately, that's in print in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> we'll be able to hold him to, this, to that uh, remark. I want, to, I want to tell you a very funny thing relating to that. Fannie Mae used to pay academics to write papers for them. Yep. And they paid Joe Stiglitz, and I think it was Peter Orzag. I've seen that paper. To write. Yeah a paper in 2002 in which they said that the there was zero risk that it would end up costing the taxpayers a penny. What I always like about these statements is that they always turn out to be true. It's not costing the taxpayers a penny. <laughs> FHA isn't going to cost us a dime. Oh, it's $100 billion, yeah, in counting. $350 billion in counting. currently from just Fannie and Freddie. And by the way, all the other bailouts of all the other banks will probably cost us net in the tens of billions or maybe less. But Fannie and Freddie alone already are costing us three hundred fifty billion. That's food for thought. Well, I thought I think they were I thought they were about a hundred. How do you get to three fifty? Oh no, they've already recognized that it's three fifty. That's that's what the, that that is the current uh, government figure. Uh, and as we've mentioned here before, the Fed's holding about a trillion dollars of Fannie and Freddie mortgages. That strangely enough, they're not marking to market. We'll see what those are worth. Um. Well, they figured out something very clever there, too, which I think it's another very important point. Um, two week, two or about three weeks ago, the Fed announced that it has a plan for getting out of uh, its current balance sheet. And it, it, it's, the Fed very cleverly threaded the needle, because everyone was worried that, given this huge portfolio you just described, how are they going to sell it? If they want to shrink their balance right, sheet, they slowly, to are they going to, yeah. So what they've done is they've announced that they're not going to sell it, that what they're going to do is engage in reverse repurchase agreements with the huge money market mutual fund industry. It's a very clever way of shrinking your balance sheet by not selling, but by actually lending the securities, but lending the securities in a way that retains all the credit risk. You're kidding. (laughs) No. So the Fed has figured out it doesn't want to recognize the losses on these. It knows it's going to need to sell them. And so what it's going to do is retain the credit risk, but shrink the balance sheet through engaging in reverse repos. Mm. Now, that's not necessarily such a bad idea, because at least it's going to help the Fed exit quickly, yeah. which they otherwise would not have been able to do. It's not the most transparent way to not do it. Not transparent at all. Uh, just a footnote before we close, uh, that Stiglitz-Urzag paper, you're rounding when you say the odds were zero. I think they said it would be one in a billion. They, they, they did their – the worst-case scenario that they could imagine with interest rates. They didn't quite imagine the worst-case scenario with housing prices. They had what they thought was the worst-case scenario. They, they, they did I, – I have a quote in a paper that I wrote. They said basically the chances are – they may have used the word essentially zero. Yeah, okay. Just, just a just – But a, they are, they are, believe me, I'm sure that – 
I'll tell you another funny thing. After I cited that paper... It disappeared, I'm sure. It disappeared from the Fannie Mae website. I've got it. It's it, you, so can, do I. you can find it. It's, oh, I had it, takes, it posted on the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute website. It, it takes some, some digging, but it's still up yeah, there if you look hard there. enough. <laughs> My guest today has been Charles Calamiris of Columbia Business School. Charles, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.